welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. And this week, I'm really pleased to have been able to chat with Dr. Lee Coleman. Dr. Coleman, trained in psychiatry during the 1960s, quickly adopting a sceptical attitude to the newly emerging field of biological psychiatry and rejecting the idea that drugs could be beneficial for so-called mental disorders. By the early 1970s, Lee's professional life was divided between a small practice of psychotherapy and a variety of activities, writing, speaking and political advocacy focused on psychiatry's role in society. His experiences led to writing the book Reign of Error in 1984, in which he brings to bear his lengthy experience in both clinical and legal issues surrounding psychiatry and society. Now retired, Lee devotes his time to public education that exposes the individual and public harms from today's mental health industry. He seeks to support a grassroots movement to abolish forced treatment and provide tools to amplify the voices of those seeking change. And our discussion today marks the first in what will hopefully be a series of interviews on a range of topics which will be released on the podcast over the coming months. Dr. Coleman, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me for the Mad at America podcast. And I I have to say, I've been looking forward very much to this conversation since we've uh, been exchanging messages. And our discussion today marks hopefully the first in what will be a series of interviews on some more detailed topics. Um, but to kick off, really, I'd like to kind of ask and come to know a little more about you, if that's okay. And I'd like to ask about your background and maybe what it was that led you towards psychiatry in the first place. Okay, James, thank you very much. And just to preface my answer, I noticed that you call me Dr. Coleman. And I don't mean I don't mind being called Dr. Coleman, but generally I just go by Lee. So I'll leave it up to you. Maybe once in a while you'll call me one to remind the audience. Just take your choice. I want the audience to know that I'm not really a very formal guy. Okay. Okay. So I got into psychiatry uh, in a rather unusual way, I think, in that when I was in college, I was a pre-med and biology major, because for reasons that would take us a while to get into, I had decided to go to medical school. But what really turned me on in college was bio um, or biology, the new biology. Now, for those of who are hearing me the first time, I'm 80 years old. So we're talking about the late 50s, 56 and 1960, when I was in college. And Biology was just going through dramatic changes. The electron microscope might seem not a big deal now, but in those days, to be able to actually see these little structures inside the cell, that was brand new. And they were beginning to work out the biochemistry of what happened inside these little structures. So that's what really turned me on. So when I got to medical school at the University of Chicago, uh, I thought, you know, probably I'd like to go into doing that kind of work because it was very exciting. University of Chicago was a very, very powerful academic environment. And so I thought that's what I was going to do. But as I then went through medical school, I began to change. I actually became much more of a student in the broad sense. I 
if I may say so. I, I was very successful in college with grade-wise, Phi Beta Kappa and all those things. But I, it was all into getting good grades. I was not a broad-based student. I just really worked hard in the classes that I had. University of Chicago was very different. It, the medical school was actually integrated into the general campus. You had biochemistry graduate students from all over the world sitting next to you in medical, in the same classes. So what happened is I began to change in terms of my, who I was in terms of intellectual things and socially I began to blossom out a little bit. And so I then decided, you know, I really think psychiatry is what fits for me because it's a part of medicine that allows you to interact with people in a way that is more than what happens with most branches of medicine. And as much respect as I had for what other medical doctors were doing in terms of the science that they had and that I could see psychiatry didn't have, I, there was a period in those days to be room for a psychiatrist who was interested in interacting with people in a broad-based way to try to help. And so that's how I got into, interested in psychiatry. And ultimately, other changes led to the, uh, you know, the kind of um, point of views that I have now. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I guess really, you know, you alluded to it there, Lee, you know, the 1950s and 60s were a time of great biological discovery, weren't they? And, you know, new drugs were coming along. And, and you know, as you say, we were finding out more about anatomy and physiology. And, you know, I guess that must have been quite exciting to be part of. Well, not so much the new drugs in terms of psychiatry. I don't know if you meant that or if you meant medicine, because right from the beginning, Actually, uh, as soon as I got to medical school, because you in medical school, you rotate through all the different branches of medicine. Uh, from the very first year, you have some exposure to the clinical side of things. Uh, and psychiatry's biological orientation, I did not care for from the beginning. I saw actually shock treatment given as a freshman in medical school because they took little groups of medical students to the state mental hospital outside of Chicago. And I was absolutely horrified. And so were the other guys in the group. There were, I think there were four of us. Because to me, it was very intuitive. Electricity put into the brain, I can't, don't tell me that's supposed to be useful. Uh, but uh, the, that division of, that part of psychiatry in those days was something I did not believe in. That is treating people with mental problems with physical things put into their body, whether it was chemicals or electricity. I didn't. I was against that from the beginning because it didn't make sense to me. So when you say new drugs, I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but it, I was always opposed to those things from the beginning. I hadn't yet formed the conclusions that I've now concluded about the other major part that's wrong with psychiatry is the legal power that we give to psychiatry. That was not in my horizons at that point. But the so-called medicalization of psychiatry was only just kind of beginning in the United States. 
1964, which we're still talking about medical school right now. We're not yet talking about my residency. You know, that's really interesting to know that the seeds of those doubts were prominent so early on. Did, did that put you at odds with the, the way that you were lectured to and, and the way that your residency went? And as you developed through your career, did that feel uncomfortable that you had this view that maybe we weren't necessarily doing the best thing for people? Not very much at that point, and I'll tell you why. And, and that's an excellent question because it, it gives the audience a chance to get the flow of how these things have developed. And that's not easy to do. If you're 40, 50 years old now, how would you know these things unless you had looked into it? In those days, psychoanalysis was still the dominant mode in education in medical school and in psychiatric training. And this point in my career now, we're still in medical school. So the heads of departments of psychiatry were psychoanalytically oriented. So I was skeptical of that, and that was the dominant model. But it was a much lighter kind of a uh, conflict. That is, I had professors who were my supervisors and uh, teachers, and they knew of my skepticism of the psychoanalytic model, but th there was a, appeared to be a growing part of psychiatry back in the late 60s, which was what they like to call in those days community psychiatry or social psychiatry. And uh, that's where I could see that I fit now, what that meant, of course, can would vary to different people's points of view, but roughly it meant that human beings are embedded in networks of people, family network, neighborhood, their larger community, political issues, economic issues, these all things all influence people. And my feeling right from the beginning was, as I was gradually realizing that I had a lot of more social skills than I thought I did when I was in college, that may be a whole other story I'm trying to get into, uh, that's where I thought I really fit. So the answer to your question is no, there really wasn't any big conflict. I was very well liked and rated by my supervisors because I think they liked my enthusiasm, my intensity. I'm a very intense kind of guy. Nobody will ever take that away from me. And so they, uh, I think they liked the fact that when I engaged with the subject, there was a lot of focus. And the fact that I didn't accept, you know, for example, we would learn about the Oedipus complex is the core of all neurosis. That's what psychoanalysis teaches. And I thought, what a bunch of nonsense. And as I began to learn about Freud, which we did in classes in medical school, I said, you know, this is like a religion. This has nothing to do with science. The, the guy, Freud, started a movement. Now, he was a very clever guy. He was an outstanding writer. And to this very day, I do believe there were certain key concepts that he was pushing you know, the, the importance of unconscious conflict, that people were not, you know, either one feeling or another. These could be little battles going on inside of you. I still believe that. So, no, it's a long-winded answer to your question of it wasn't really a conflict. In those days, there was a friendly little competition. There were behavior mod kind of interested people. 
There were some other people, other kinds of schools of thought, but there seemed to be plenty of room for these different points of view. And what I called the biological psychiatrists, I wanted nothing to do with that from the beginning. And I never really believed that drugs made any sense to work with people who are having emotional problems, behavioral issues, issues of self-esteem, issues of relationships. That has to do who they are as a human being, and it's simply not in the medical arena. And that actually was with me from the time I got to medical school. Excellent. Thank you. And so, Lee, what kind of happened next in your story? So, you know, you, you described medical school and, you know, then did you go on to do a, a residency and, and then was it private practice or was it hospital based? And I guess also aligned with that, obviously, during the 70s and 80s, psychoanalysis, I believe, started to become uh, not the favored approach so much in psychiatry. So psychiatry perhaps moved away from a psychoanalytic framework. So, you know, I wondered how you kind of felt about that transition. Well, actually, we have to stay a little earlier than the 70s and 80s. I, I noticed that's a lot, a lot of people who are not quite 80 years old yet, how difficult it is to understand that. You really need to go back to my, in my evolution, we're now talking about 1965 to 1969. So when I got to my residency, uh, psychoanalysis was still the most dominant way of viewing things. But the biological psychiatrists were starting to emerge a little more. It wasn't really something that I was getting into fights with in my residency because when I applied to my residency, I looked at four or five other residency programs. And I rejected in my own mind. I never gave them a chance to decide whether they wanted me or not. I simply knew I wasn't going to go to UCLA. I wasn't going to go to the Langley Porter program. That's the University of California in San Francisco. I wasn't going to go to Columbia in New York or Einstein in New York. Uh, because every one of those programs, I could see that their psychoanalytic framework, they were going to try to shove that down my throat. I could feel it. The only program that was a more flexible, open-ended program, and I thought, these people will let me be who I am, even though I knew I had a lot to learn, was the uh, program at the University of Colorado Medical Center in Denver. So that's where I went. So no, there, there were a lot of fights, and biological psychiatry, you might call it the medical model, was not something that we were fighting about it was a little bit of you know lee doesn't really go for the freud very much but we like his work and uh that's kind of the way it was and the but there were other things developing that i should tell you about which is relevant to your point of view and that is that the psychiatry just in those years the late 60s was feeling the heat from other people who were tired of being second-class citizens in the mental health field. I'm talking about psychologists, social workers, people who ultimately went on to become marriage and family counselors, even some religious counselors. They started lobbying successfully to be able to get licenses to do therapy. The way I put it, 
when I, I used to complain to my supervisors I, in the child psychiatry program, I used to say, you know, why should it be that I'm seeing the child in therapy, the psychologist is doing testing on the child or the parents or both, and the social worker is making the phone calls, acting like some kind of glorified secretary. They all wanted to be equal. They wanted to do the therapy. That's what everybody wanted to do. That's where the fun was. That's where the, the heart of things were. And I would say, you know what? I want to work with the parents if I'm working with this child. Uh, and so we were getting in those kind of battles. The medical stuff was not yet there, but the point I'm making, this is really important for the audience, and after all, that's what we're here for, is understand that what happened is psychiatry started going on the offensive to redefine itself in order to say, no, you guys go to the back of the bus because we are the ones who should be in charge. You know why? Because these problems are medical. They're diseases, and you guys don't know how to diagnose diseases. Now, I know that's a subject for another day, but just chalk that one up, put it on your notepad, because we are definitely going to get into the fact that psychiatry started claiming that they were discovering medical diseases in order to keep them in position number one. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Kind of, I guess, fast forwarding then a little bit. So if, if we, we look towards 1984, then that's when you published your book, Reign of Error, which I, I've really enjoyed reading. And it's a fascinating read, but it, it's also worrying because it paints quite a disturbing picture, I felt, of the power wielded by psychiatrists to influence the lives of people. And as you said, they're perhaps maybe not based on rigorous science or particular expertise. So when I was reading it, I wondered what it was that kind of led you to writing that book and what the motivation for it was and, you know, how you felt about completing it because, you know, it's, um, you know, it's very easy to read, you know, it's, 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 it's not a, doesn't come across as a, you know, an academic piece. It comes across as a piece from the heart really. And so, you know, I just wondered what motivated you to write it. Yeah, well, thank you very much for describing it that way. And of course, you are right. I I went, you know, out of my way to write that book for ordinary people, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do now. That's my career has been that way. And the developments were that 1984 is when the book was published. By that time, I had been working in California, Berkeley, as a psychiatrist since 1971. I moved with my family to California. I had finished my residency. I had a two-year military obligation to serve. That takes us to 1971. I was definitely an enemy of medicalized psychiatry by, before I got to California. We've already talked about that. I began then to see some things that totally opened my mind to the other side of what was wrong with psychiatry. And that is the fact that psychiatrists had legal power to do things. And just think about that. The only branch of medicine, and we'll leave aside whether it should be a branch of medicine, but for the moment, the only branch of medicine that does not have science in it, psychiatry is an art. I could see that. There were things that could be taught to young trainees that made you, there were standards of being a professional, but it did, doesn't make it a science. 
the only branch of medicine that doesn't have science was given something that no other branch had is power over the people that you're supposed to be helping. Now, how did I get that experience? Well, in the beginning, I didn't get it too much, but that I was working for Kaiser, a prepaid medical care plan. I think many people are familiar with it. And I had great respect for the medical doctors in that system. I still do. I began to see things as I was working in the psychiatry portion of it, though. Outside of my work in Kaiser, I began to see things in the political and legal arena. Because of other things I had done in my residency, I was involved in anti-war activity, and I, you know, I, I can talk. I mean, people can see that I put myself into it. I had some experience. I wanted to find out what was going on politically. And right in front of me, as I got to California, and it's in the introduction of the book, the very first thing is there were some shootings going on in the California prisons. There was a book that came out by a prisoner named George Jackson. The book was called Soul Dad Brother, which were letters to his attorney. And what I discovered is this guy was being tortured by something that was being taught to me when I was a resident in psychiatry, violating what I had come to believe in. And that is sentencing somebody to prison for, say, six months to life made sense. I believe that when I was in my psychiatry training because I didn't think about it very much. I read that book and I realized this guy, he was involved. He was a getaway car in a liquor store robbery, armed robbery. That's a serious offense. People can get killed in that kind of thing. But a sentence of six months to life, and how would you decide when somebody's going to get out with a sentence of six months to life? The way you did it is you walk the walk and talk the talk of somebody who says, I'm reformed. You know, I'm going through all the treatment programs, the therapy programs. I'm a good boy. And part of that was psychiatric opinion. They would interview the guy. Now, George Jackson was part of a newly evolving black militant political consciousness that was aware of the fact that why did so many black men end up in prison? Was it mental illness as they used to teach? Crime is simply a symptom of mental disorder. So that book opened my mind. I said, this guy is completely right. I got involved in some reform groups where prisoners were the ones in charge, helped by some attorneys. I wrote an article, the very first professional article in my career. It was called Prisons, the Crime of Treatment. And that was a response to a book by Carl Menninger, the most famous psychiatrist of the day. He had a book called Prison, the Crime of Punishment. My article was a direct confrontation of what he said. It wasn't punishment that was the problem. If you commit a crime, you deserve to get punished. It's only a matter of, is it being done fairly? And are we doing things to address the general problem of crime as a social issue? So that was my first article, and that opened my eyes to the broad-based issue of not only what's wrong with psychiatry is its medical model, but the fact that it is linked to the power of the state and the reign of error is about both. The book talks about the subjects that I had been exposed to up until 1984. 
Nothing has changed between 1984 and now, except, oh my God, it is unbelievable how much worse it is. We are in deep doo-doo. And that's what you and I talking is all about. Absolutely. In reading the book, Lee, you know, you, you mentioned in the book, and, and we, we, we've corresponded about this, you mentioned in the book that you have testified in over 130 civil and criminal trials. And you also told me recently that, you know, that was, that was up to 84. And actually, you know, there have been many more since then. And your testimony, I suppose one has an expectation of the kind of testimony that a psychiatrist gives at trial, but the kind of testimony you you were giving and writing in the book was very different to that that I expected. So I, I wondered if we could talk about that and perhaps you could describe for the listeners what your particular approach was when you came to testify and how that was different to what mainstream psychiatrists might be doing. Well, James, I'm going to have to give you an A plus for that question because, okay, I'm sitting here enjoying every minute of talking with you. And we've got an audience out there. And frankly, I care about them more than I care about you. You and I are the guys, but they're the ones who we're talking to. Now, in that audience, if there aren't people who want to know, well, if I look at, if I listen to this guy and he's got everything, so many things negative to say about psychiatry, and yet I'm going to learn that he's testified in somewhere between 800 and 1,000 cases as an expert witness, qualified as a psychiatrist. That's how he gets to testify as an expert. What the hell is going on? Well, you gave me a platform to help them understand that and to plead with them, don't make up your mind about who Lee Coleman is until you understand what that testimony has been. And I'm going to give you an introduction to it now. And I have the extreme good fortune of being able to talk to James more than today. We're going to get into it. Here's the bottom line. In not a single case have I ever testified about the state of anybody's mind. In every case, my testimony is about something else. It's about the state of psychiatry. Now, normally, expert witnesses who have the credentials of a psychiatrist don't talk about the state of psychiatry. They talk about the state of somebody's mind. I will not do that. I would never have been willing to do that. When an attorney calls me up because they think I might be able to assist them in a case, the first thing I do is ask them if they know who I am and what I do. And I tell them I don't ever testify about the state of anybody's mind because psychiatrists are not truly expert. And the law defines what that means. In the law, being an expert means that you have either training or experience or knowledge that allows you to form an opinion in a way that with tools that lay people don't have. You are then allowed to give an opinion which the people deciding the case, they give it how much weight they want to give it. They can give it no weight or they can give it a lot of weight. And I make sure the attorney understands that before we even start talking. Every one of the cases that I testify in is a case where psychiatry has already been in the case, either in testimony that has taken place or in write-ups and reports or in training of the investigators of a case. And I've had 30 years of working in cases of a particular type 
where people often misjudge me and it's not their fault. They just need to hear more information. And that is cases where there's been an accusation of sexual abuse of a child, an enormously sensitive, for good reason, topic. There is sadly a situation now where in addition to sexual abuse being a real thing, it happens to children, it happens to adults, it happens. In addition, however, and I never testify in cases where there's good evidence, not contaminated by phony psychiatric theories, I simply wouldn't have any purpose, any reason to get in a case like that. But sadly, there's been created a network of investigation which has it all wrong because of the influence of mental health professionals, not just psychiatrists, but some of them, but social workers, people in the law, mistrained by people from my profession. And they have contaminated the process by which we try to find out has abuse like that taken place. So your question is, how could I have testified in all those cases if I'm so critical of psychiatry? There's nothing inconsistent. It all is part of the same thing. And I know that you're going to give the audience resources of mine, and I'm, not, I'm just one person, who has addressed that, those different areas, areas where it has to do where I've testified on behalf of questioning the process by which somebody thinks a child's been molested, and in many other kind of cases as well. So yes, if a lot has happened since 84, when the reign of error was written, I had never had any exposure to that other side where the subject of sexual abuse was a topic. Right after that, as a matter of fact, defense attorneys started calling me for that kind of case. So it's been quite a roller coaster ride, I can promise you, and I'm sure we will get into that in more detail. We will. And the kind of legal side of psychiatry and, and the power wielded by psychiatrists was not an area that I'd thought too much about before reading Reign of Error. But you describe really beautifully in it how a jury will look to a psychiatric expert for the last word on the mental state of the individual on trial. And that, you know, as you say yourself, because the psychiatrist themselves is not using any particular skill or any particular relying on any particular expertise, actually the risk is there that they'll fail the person on trial or they'll fail society if they make the wrong judgment. And yet still we place such almost godlike mythical status in them to say what were the motivations for this person committing this act. Well, you know, you're so right. And I got to just tell you, you're so right that it's even worse. So you're kind of a little bit wrong, if you know what I mean. In other words... It's not just that they're no better than lay people. And this, I'm now going to say things that I have testified to hundreds and hundreds of times in my testimony, which illustrates the kind of testimony I give. Psychiatrists are worse than lay people. If you want to decide, let's say, somebody's, let's say, are, is this person understand that what they're doing when they committed a crime is wrong? How could they be worse? Come on. These people who graduated medical school, went to psychiatry training, they're smart people. I mean, there's no question about that. They're, they're normal people. They're well-meaning people, except 
the leadership maybe, but <laughs> and even they are well-meaning. They're just misguided. How could they be worse? If you are a member of a profession and you have certain things that you've learned to do, and now the law and society says, we want your opinion on a certain subject, we're going to qualify you as an expert to talk about that subject, and you therefore believe you do have some tools. What are you going to do to try to answer the question that they're asking you? Like, what's this person's intention? What's this person's capabilities and so forth? You're going to use the tools that you have, aren't you? Because that's what they're going to allow you to, to use. And if those tools don't work, you're still going to use them. So they're going to give you psychological tests, or they're going to do what they call a clinical interview and simply talk to you. And therefore, what is a person who's trained as a medical doctor whose whole life experience has been working with patients? We trust our patients, for God's sake. If we didn't trust the patients we're working with, do you think you're going to get anywhere in a therapeutic relationship? We're not trained to be investigators, to be skeptical. We want to trust the people. We take what they tell us. So you're going to use methods which are actually worse than lay people because a lay person sitting on a jury or a, a judge is a lay person in forming an opinion about somebody's mind. They may be an expert in the law, but they're not an expert in terms of mental functioning. So the expert from psychiatry who's using their traditional methods will be more likely to do what he does or she in a normal clinical situation than in the legal arena. So what I explain to the jurors is, I urge you in judging what weight to give to Dr. Smith, who you've already heard testify, I my opinion is not only should you give it no weight at all, but you should recognize the opinion is worse than your opinion. And I don't know what your opinion is, but because you will not rely on psychiatric tools, which are not genuine, you will rely on your common sense. But most important, you will rely on the other things you've learned in the case. You've learned the prosecution side of what the evidence is. You've learned the defense's side. And you have your life experience. You have learned what was the behavior of the person accused. Accused of a criminal act, accused of being incapable of taking care of themselves. Spit everything out you heard from the psychiatrist. Take in everything else you heard. Weigh it form your opinion, and you'll do a better job than you would do if they ever let the psychiatrist come in in the first place. But generally speaking, it's contaminating the law. There are medical situations where medically trained people have tools that lay people don't have, but not when it comes to the areas that psychiatry deals with. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you, you give many examples in the book where there are situations where the defense and the prosecution both have their own expert psychiatrists on hand who completely disagree with each other and contradict each other, yet using ostensibly the same tools to examine the patient. But they're using the same tools and coming out with completely opposing views. And so, you know, I, I think the book suggests very strongly that it's subjective interpretation of behaviors based more on personal values than perhaps on a specific framework. Yeah, yeah. It 
And that actually brings us to another topic that, uh, again, I know we're, we're going to have the time to get into it is I'm going to, I'm going to use you, James, as my kind of foil uh, because it's impossible, really is impossible for us not to fall into the traps of what words we use in language. The words are so powerful. They trigger off whole associations of meaning in all of us, but we can train ourselves to avoid using words which set off one train of thinking if we don't really agree with it. So you said the different experts for the prosecution of defense they do in examination. And that word examination is in the context of a medical doctor or somebody who's a scientist, supposedly. That makes us think that they're doing a scientific thing. But if they're not, then we need to hear what they say or read what they've written in a very different way. So one of the things that I'm going to emphasize so strongly in our talks, and I've emphasized it in the reign of error, but if I was writing that book again today, I would write it even more carefully with the language. And I often, when I work with attorneys to teach them how to cross-examine doctors, doctors from psychiatry or psychologists, I make sure that in their question, they expose what those words are. So psychiatrists don't examine anybody in the scientific way. They interact with people. They talk to people. They observe people. But I teach the attorneys how to say, well, doctor, when you say you examined Mrs. Jones, tell us what you actually do. I mean, what do you mean when you say you examine? And a typical answer would be, well, I talked to her. Well, when you talk to her, do you talk in a way that allows you to form conclusions that are more reliable than what a, say, uh, a, a, a endocrinologist would do? And you bring out through those kind of questions that the talking is not supplemented by other things that can test things out. Other medical doctors have laboratory examinations which are scientific and reliable. Psychiatrists don't. It's just observing and, talk and talking. And that can be useful in an artistic way, it's, but not a scientific way. So, yeah, the examinations are, dis they're not examinations, they're disguised. And the key now, again, uh, uh, it may seem like I'm talking to you, but I'm, I'm looking right at my audience. I hope they're looking right at me. The key to seeing through psychiatry's counterfeit nature, what it's doing, and the key to talking to your friends and bringing them on board, which is what we got to do, is to help them understand what the words really mean. It's, it's what I like to call the war of the words. You know, the book, The War of the Worlds, written around the turn of the century, was, you know, about how words, the power of words and the power of influence on people. Psychiatry has all the power to influence people through language because they have money, power through the pharmaceutical industry, and we are getting chewed up very badly. We have to fight back, 
And the way we have to fight back is to explain to people what the words mean so that when a psychiatrist uses force against somebody without their uh, permission, that is not treatment. Treatment is what medical doctors give to voluntary patients, etc. We'll go into that in more detail. There's a whole vocabulary that I've written about and talking about on YouTube, but we need to pay attention to language. And if we do that, we have at least some chance to get people to understand what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Lee, you know, given this concern about how a jury might view a psychiatric expert and the status they might give them in their own minds as being a, a professional with specific tools or expertise to define the mental state of the person on trial, what should we be doing, do you think, to address that? You know, And, and I think Reign of Error kind of suggests a, a way forward with that, but I, I just wondered if you could explain to us how that might work. Well, yes, I can. Uh, First of all, I think what has to happen is that the law has a different set of meanings for certain words, and the judges will tell that jury what the meanings are. It's called the jury instructions. But nonetheless, the judges can have biases. They can be favoring one side or the other. It happens all the time. And the each side is trying to influence the jury to maybe not pay as close attention to what those words actually mean. So, for example, if we take one of the examples I give, because, of course, it had happened before I wrote the book in 1984, was the trial of John Hinckley, who attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. The law at that time said that if you, as a result of mental disorder, did not understand that doing what you did was against the law, was morally wrong, and that you had an obligation not to do something that was morally wrong because of mental disorder. If either one of those mental states uh, was present, you didn't have the ability to know it was wrong or you couldn't help yourself because mental disorder got in the way, then the person was legally in insane. And they would not be sent to prison, they would be sent to another kind of institution. Okay. In that kind of trial, what the defense's job is to convince the jury uh, uh, that the person suffered from one or both of those kind of deficits. The prosecution's point of view would be, no, he knew that it was wrong, but he just chose to do it anyway. Now, in hundreds, thousands of cases over the decades, people, even though the percentages were small, people were found legally insane because the defense was successfully able to convince a jury things like, well, you know, that's such a terrible thing to do. You'd have to be crazy in order to be legally sane. And he, he must have been crazy. That is a perversion of a meaning under the law. And I testified many, many times for prosecutors over the years saying that there isn't any way to tell whether somebody knew that it was wrong by asking a psychiatrist. The way to tell whether they knew it's wrong was their behavior in the time leading up to the crime, in the, t in the actual way you committed it, 
and in your behavior afterwards. Now, John Hinckley did not, when, when he was standing where he was, and as Ronald Reagan walked out from whatever he was doing to get into that cab, for those of you who are too young to, to you're not old enough to know that, that's what happened. He was about to get into a car and Hinckley was standing in the crowd. He pulled out the gun, which had been hidden. Now, in my testimony, to rebut what the defense psychiatrists were saying, I would have explained, if I was in that trial, I would have explained that the act of taking the gun out only when there was an opportunity to shoot the president, but not doing anything about it before that, not taking it out ahead of time, that act carries intuitive kind of meaning. meaning. So ask yourself, what do I think it means of that behavior? And what do I know about this person in his interactions with people beforehand? The people who knew him, because people like that are usually called as witnesses. That kind of information will tell you all you need to know about whatever the law defines as legal sanity or insanity. So that's one part of the work that I've done all those years. The other reform, though, that we needed is, and people need to study to learn about this, the laws were changed in order to encourage the kind of psychiatric testimony that was present then. Subsequently, the law got changed, so it's narrower now. It says, if you understood that what it was, what you did was wrong, we won't ask whether you couldn't help it because of mental disorder. We don't ask that anymore. It's a single-pronged test rather than a two-pronged test. Well, even that shouldn't be in there. It shouldn't be a matter of did you know it was wrong because the act, I mean, and, and allow expert testimony. We need more time to really get into that. But the, the question is, the laws needed to be changed. Somewhat they've been changed, but they still need to be changed to basically prevent psychiatry from contaminating those kind of trials. And really what you'd end up with is the only time where a psychiatrist maybe would come into the law would be to talk about the nature of his profession in, say, a malpractice case you know, what kind of behavior is okay, according to, and then you'd have differing opinions, but it would not be seeing the person as a scientist, because there isn't any science in psychiatry. That's the bottom line. We can't treat psychiatrists as scientists in the law, and we can't give them any power based on the idea that they should have any power, because that violates other things, which I think we will we'll get into if not today, some other time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that was a really great explanatory overview of perhaps where we've gone wrong, certainly maybe with a, the legal power of psychiatry to, to diagnose others, and particularly from a legal perspective. Well, I hope so. You know, as I'm sitting here and thinking, wow, you know, I'm really bouncing all over the place. And I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it's tough because these topics, they're like a, a, a web. And I used the, the, the analogy of a spider web before the World Wide Web. I really did. Trust me on that. Because these topics lead all over the place. And I just want, I know you will be letting people know that the reign of error, which is what we're talking about, is now on the web on my website. So you'll be giving them that kind of links. 
And I would absolutely love it if people go there and you can read every word of it. It's not yet ready for a download that, that will be coming. But you really need time to absorb these things. And uh, it's only up to 84, but it, uh, it's important background. And in essence, things haven't changed. They've just gotten worse. I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, when we can get into some of the things since 84. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, it might be nice to, to kind of round out this initial session to perhaps get some reflections from you on where you think psychiatry is and how you feel about psychiatry now in the intervening time between 84 and kind of now. And, you know, I, I can tell you from my perspective that, you know, here in the UK, an awful lot is talked about the biopsychosocial model, but actually when it comes down to it, it's still predominantly a bio model you know the, the biological still very much drives and you know psychiatry makes claims about taking into account people's environments and their social lives and you know many many other factors but still when it comes down to treatment the treatment is predominantly a biologically focused thing it's drugs or it's ect or it's some physical process to the body rather than an ethereal mental thing so i just wondered what your reflections were about modern psychiatry well, it's become a nightmare, absolute nightmare. When I was starting in psychiatry, it was the main thing that was developing that was going in the wrong direction, but now it's completely taken over. It's way worse than we've even touched on today. It's And American psychiatry is dominating, just like we have uh, been allowed to dominate in so many other ways. I mean, I don't need to tell your audience of all the terrible things that are going on in the world. And America's influence is right there in the forefront, creating it. There are so many terrible things going on that it's very hard to get people to even want to give it the attention of what psychiatry's role is. But it is huge. For example, the World Health Organization is the a one organization that is determining whether a program can be legitimized in various parts of the world, not just America or not just Europe, but everywhere. If those programs do not have the emphasis on medication, pills, I shouldn't call it medication, pills, drugs, for so-called diseases, which don't exist. The problem exists, what we call psychosis or, or you know, breakdown. Those are real. It's not to say that the conditions are not real, but they're not diseases. They're not what psychiatry is teaching. The, and then if you don't get the, if you do not have the drugs and the diag so-called diagnostic labels, you cannot be approved for World Health Organization funding. So in essence, America, American psychiatry is leading the way to worldwide drugging of the population from children all the way up to the elderly. It's that bad. And just think about this, you know, People are not understanding enough that it's not just whether the drugs are working. If you take chemicals which are designed to go into the central nervous system, 
They know how to do that. But there's no pathology, no medical disorder that has been discovered that you are possibly going to address. And you know that the nervous system is, is a fantastically complicated as it is. Do you think you're going to improve anything? You're not going to improve anything. What are you going to do? You're going to harm it. If you turn on your Tesla, your Mercedes, something that has some moving parts, and you throw something into it, and you don't know what's wrong, it's not going to make it better. It's going to make it worse. That is what psychiatry is all about. It's a catastrophe, it's an emergency. And the problem is the people doing it have all the power because they have all the money. Our side has only the power of the people that we can help to understand what's going on. If we have any chance, it's through the power of our will, our political will, and our, that has to come from our understanding. And that, in turn, I believe, has to come through language and persuasion and political action. So the people who have the point of view that I know you have and that I have, and Mad in America, who I'm very privileged to be talking to you, we are in a very tiny minority. We have to gather our forces by talking to each other, by study and then bringing other people into the fold and hope that we can create a counter movement, which will eventually get to those people who can pass laws. And, and it's not gonna happen in my lifetime, but I, I can guarantee you that's what I'm gonna be trying to do for the years that I have is public education to teach people what psychiatry is and is not, and it's not what they're claiming it is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Leo, I want to say thank you to you for your years of campaigning on this and awareness raising and writing Reign of Error and for standing up for people in in trials. You know, you, you've clearly lived this and and you know that's that's hugely impressive to read about and to understand. So thank you too. You know, I just wondered if there was anything burning for you that you wanted to tell the listeners. Well, yeah, it's not a, it's not a, a, the kind of thing we were talking. It's really more about how I feel about what we're doing here. I just want to, I am very, very grateful to have this opportunity. James is a, uh, he's a brother in arms as far as I'm concerned. I, it's a dream come true to be able to talk to the public in a way where we have time. And you listeners have the time, and I, I'm looking forward to the fact that this is open-ended. James and I can talk as long as you out there want to hear us. So feedback and interaction, you know, if you get back to us in the ways that James will let you know how to do that, we, I, I promise you, we will pay attention. Uh, and we can talk to each other. We, we don't have to agree on every single point. But as long as we're talking to each other respectfully, I don't know what else we could do. And uh, 
my heart is in it. And uh, if yours is in it, there'll be a meeting that I think could be very productive. And I, I'm looking forward to it more than I hope I'm communicating it. And uh, I'm pretty sure I, I can do that. So I look forward to next time. Come back and bring your friends back. Tell them. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you, Lee. And, you know, for people listening, I just want to say, if you can find a copy of Rain and Error and read it, it's a, it's a really human book. You know, I've read many books that are supposedly critical of psychiatry that have felt quite cold and, and quite emotionless, but Rain of Error is a very warm, very engaging read. And I, I you know, I encourage people to, to find it. And, you know, exactly as Lee said there, you know, this is a, this is a community here. So if people want to, influence what we talk about then get in touch and and tell us and you know we would love to do that so i think all that remains is lee for me to thank you it's such an honor for me to to get to talk to you and and to examine some of these things and i likewise am very excited about getting into more depth and more detail on some of these critically important areas for for modern society all right man thanks very much look forward to next time well, I just want to thank Lee for taking the time to chat. And if you want to find links to more of Lee's work, you can find them in the post that accompanies this interview on maddenamerica.com. So thank you for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates. 